Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, it's less than a week until the election, and the NDP may play the spoiler. How do we explain the recent surge? Record-breaking amount of people used the advanced polls this past weekend. What does that say? And the funeral for Devin Selby took place over the weekend. Have we learned anything moving forward? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, here we are. We're in the home stretch. Everybody said that Thanksgiving weekend, uh, and it was funny because we were talking to friends <laughs> friends yesterday, and they said this very thing happened, that uh, the Thanksgiving they had done the day before, <laughs> as everybody uh, discusses politics. Uh, that's after the family stuff, so they're exhausted by the time this is all over. Uh, and have the polls changed? What has happened? Uh, we still have a virtual neck and neck between first and second, but what's becoming fascinating is what's coming up in third place, and at one time, some said in fourth. Uh, let's bring in Sean Simpson of Ipsos. He is with us now. Sean, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, thank you. So, Sean, we were talking prior to the debate, and everybody was kind of, whether it was you or other people or other pollsters or poli or whatever, was saying, you know, we sort of need something to break this deadlock, uh, yeah. hoping the debates would do that. And unfortunately, well, maybe it did. It was the start of the wave for, uh, for Jugmeet Singh. Uh, still a neck-and-neck neck heat, but what's happening behind them is quite fascinating. Yeah, there's all kinds of things happening, even though the top line tends to show a tie between the Liberals and Conservatives, and really has for the entire campaign. Uh, in the last week, though, there has been some significant movement. The Liberals are down five points, the Tories are down two points, and Jagmeet Singh's NDP is up five points in one week to 20% uh, of the popular vote uh, nationwide. So clearly he resonated with people uh, in, in the debates, both uh, in, uh, in English and French. So are we crediting this all to the debate then? Well, I don't see any other reason why Jagmeet Singh and the NDP all of a sudden would have, uh, you know, uh, sparked a, a fire in their in their campaign. Uh, you know, I don't think there are any particular policy issues that that uh, you know people have have grabbed a hold of. It was just that he seemed dynamic and uh, and engaging and intelligent and um, you know kind of the the least um, scripted of of all of the leaders, and and that seems to to resonate. He seems like a real person that people uh, people like. Uh, now, all of a sudden, all of the chatter has uh, has turned to coalition government. The leaders yeah. are getting bombarded with these questions. Uh, how do you balance moving forward and trying to make ties for the future? Yeah, well, this is a difficult one, right? Um, because we have a lot of movement still. And there's still, you know, it's only five or six days, but it's a lot of time in, in, in politics. Um, and uh, it, it's hard to see with these numbers a path to majority for pretty well anybody. And to further complicate matters, for example, if the Liberals end up with a plurality, that's with the most seats, even if it's not a majority, um, a Liberal plus NDP might not equal 170, which is the number you need to, to govern. So, you know, they're, they're, uh, power makes for strange bedfellows, right? We could see the bloc entering uh, into the discussion. We could see the Green Party entering into the discussion. I, I think it's, it's going to be uh, a master class in the art of the deal after Election Day. Uh, it's uh, it's fascinating because it appeared when the campaign started um, that the, the Liberals were way out in front or just prior to that, and then the scandals started to break. And you could see the Prime Minister sort of retreat back to Quebec and, mm. and, and concentrate on the province of Quebec because he knew that 
that's where he could win and, and win the election just simply because of the seats there. The, the block, the resurgence in the block, talk about their effect and how that could alter the federal the federal landscape. Yeah, it changes the game entirely. Uh, you're right that the prime minister uh, was looking really solid in Quebec with about 40% of the popular vote throughout the first half of the campaign. And what that means is that all of those seats that the NDP are going to lose, I think there's about a dozen or 15 of them, would easily go to the to the Liberal Party. And that was really the only area where they could pick up votes across the country. Now it actually looks like that they're going to lose seats in Quebec. And so um, the Prime Minister's path to victory is a lot harder with a stronger Bloc Québécois. What about the NDP in Quebec? Because although they're seeing a rise, they're still protecting a loss for them in Quebec. So everything yeah. else they're making out offset that? Yeah, we're still only seeing them at 15% of the popular vote. Now, it has to be really concentrated in some ridings in order to save the furniture. Uh, but uh, I think um, I think Quebecers have made up their mind as to uh, which party is going to be their protest vote this time around, and it's not the NDP. Uh, I mean, things could still change, but I'm just not seeing it. I think that the, the Bloc Québécois at about 30% support right now is is challenging the Liberals um, and, uh, you know, could could still end up with equal or, or more votes than they have. Can the NDP make a credible charge without Quebec? Uh, yeah, they can. I mean, they're certainly not going to form government, but the, the key for the NDP is to get enough seats that they plus liberals or, uh, you know, uh, heaven forbid, you know, from their perspective, uh, NDP plus conservatives equal 170. They clearly want to hold the balance of power here. And that's why we're hearing Jagmeet Singh talking about uh, who he's going to work with and, and who he isn't. So uh, what are the options for a coalition government? What, what realistic, and these are all projections, of yeah. course, but, but what are your thoughts there? Well, I, I think the, the most viable option is likely the Liberals being supported by the, the NDP. But again, it, it's not clear at the moment whether or not they would even have 170 seats to do that uh, between the two. They may need to invite another partner. Um, I think any other um, arrangement isn't going to be billed as as formal. Um, you know, even you know, Harper uh, in, in 06, when he had his, his minority government, uh, didn't form a coalition, but he, he said, well, I'll work with different parties on different issues. Now, that doesn't last a very long time, usually. We were in an election two years later, but it, 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 gets, you, it gets you started um, anyway. So we'll see what happens. Uh, you said the path to my uh, for anyone to get to a majority is quite slim. Um, what are the possibilities there? What has to happen for either one to get a majority? Yeah, well, what has to happen is uh, some kind of significant movement in Ontario, particularly in the 905 region, southwestern Ontario. Right now, we're showing a, a, a modest liberal lead there. Um, it's really their their holdout, right? If, if Quebec isn't as, as for liberals as they want to be, then they're absolutely focused on the 905 um, and areas around Toronto. Um, if the Conservatives start to gain some strength there, then they will, I, I think, be better positioned to, to form government and, and maybe maybe even a majority if the NDP is also strong and, and splits the left. Um, but aside from that, um, there, I don't see any path. Uh, what about the NDP splitting the left vote? Yeah, it's an absolute disaster for the Prime Minister, an absolute disaster. A strong NDP, a strong Green Party does nothing but put the Conservatives into 24 Sussex Drive. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, Andrew Shear smiling, he's probably very happy insofar as he only has 32% of the vote, which is 
actually probably terrible, um, he could still win the election with, you know, as little as 32 or 33 percent of conser- of Canadians uh, supporting him and voting for his party. So I think the next uh, government is going to have to be careful not to mix up a message for a mandate, because it's really hard to claim a strong mandate when you've only got one third of Canadians who voted for you. Uh, minority government, if we end up with that, with that, where do they usually last? How long do they normally last? Well, 18 months, uh, you know, historically is, is, is about the, the yard post. Some a little bit, uh, less than that, some a little bit more than that, but usually 18 months because then you've got, uh, you know, a full a budget, a full year, and then the next year's budget, and then you know, there's you kind of have to decide whether or not you want to keep going with this alternative or not. So, um, you know, I, I suspect that we're probably into another election, you know, end of 2020, early 2021, if this thing doesn't uh, doesn't have more movement. Uh, is do you see this as a as a tide changing election? Do you see this as the we'll look back at this election as 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 a, as a tide changer, a tide turner at all? Yeah, it's hard to say because it's a bit of an anomaly. Um, you know, it's very, very rare for governments governments to be defeated after one term. And mm-hmm. and that's both in Canada and the United States. You know, you, you, there aren't very many one-term presidents either. And so inertia would suggest that the Liberals be re-elected, maybe, you know, with a majority, but perhaps a smaller majority than the one they had the first time around. So th- this is a very interesting dynamic because we've got people who are clearly disappointed in the Prime Minister, but don't know where else to go. Mm. Um, and so we're stuck in this perpetual tie between the Liberals and the Conservatives, and now more people looking for an alternative in the NDP or in the Bloc Québécois. Uh, voter turnout now predicting high. At one time, we were predicting everybody was going to yeah. be cynical and, and just stay at home. Um, what about and what about the advanced polls? Uh, I voted in the advanced polls over this weekend. For me, convenience more than anything. Yeah. Does it is this any indicator, or is it just now the new world we're living in, where you get to do it? You know, you have more options. Yeah, well, I think more options. I voted this weekend as well, as you can imagine. I'm a little busy on uh, on Election Day. Uh, but um, I, I think, you know, it's hard to know what to take away from it, aside from the fact that more people voted early. You know, a lot of people say, oh, it f- favors the incumbent or, oh, it, it, it favors the conservatives because it's it's older people. Or you could say it favors the liberals because clearly other people are getting out and voting. I, I, I don't think it favors anybody. I just think it means more people voted early. And, and we'll have to wait to see what the impact is, because no two elections are alike and there's mm-hmm. different dynamics at play every time. Uh, what about demographics here? Uh, we've often heard that uh, baby boomers uh, obviously more vote and just the, the, the segment of the population that yep. they encompass. Now we're hearing that the millennial vote has more of an impact this time. And, and there's actually, is, are there more millennial voters this time than baby boomers or vice versa still? Yeah, well, it, uh, we've heard a lot of people saying more millennial voters than, than boomers. And, uh, you know, I, I haven't checked the math on that, but yeah. uh, you know, let, let's assume that's true. Um, and it's in theory there are more millennial than boomers but in practice absolutely more boomers show up than than right. millennials so and that's the ndp's trouble right they're popular among those under the age of 35 but they're also much less likely to say they're going to vote and so when you look at the surge of the ndp i question whether or not it's going to stick around because we see that their supporters are less likely to show up and less committed to the party so uh, i think it's i think it's a blip i mean i'm i'm absolutely prepared to be wrong on that <laughs> So uh, into the last stretch, uh, and again, very much like a horse race in the sense that the action all happens towards the end. Uh, yeah. What are you expecting over the next week? Will these numbers settle down or, uh, again, depends what happens? 
Yeah, I, I think in the last week, what we're going to see is, um, and it happens over at, uh, at Woodbine Racetrack as well, uh, people betting on the leading horses, mm-hmm. right? Um, in, a, in a campaign that is so tight and so close and has been, people are going to want to make sure that their vote counts. And even if they have to hold their nose and vote for one of the two leading candidates, I think that's what's going to happen. We'll see the Liberals and the Tories improve again in the last week and... Um, you know, it's really anybody's game at this point. Uh, the block and and Quebec parking their protest vote there. Um, at one time, we were talking about the same thing with the NDP and the Green. It seems that the Greens came out very strong, but have since very much subsided. Yeah, indeed, their support was uh, was was weaker. Uh, even though we had them up to about eleven percent at one point in time, other pollsters had them, I think, closer to fifteen and rivaling the NDP. We never saw that in our polling. NDP was always third. Green Party was always always fourth. And and when we looked at that Green Party vote, again, similar to the NDP, we saw it was less committed. These people were less likely to go out and vote. So, you know, in most ridings across Canada, probably 290 ridings across Canada, the Green Party is just simply not in it. Um, in, in the other 10% of ridings, uh, they may have a chance. And so if you're not in one of those, you know, people are probably thinking, well, I may be better off to pick another party that has a better shot. Uh, what about British Columbia, where uh, obviously we've uh, we've seen uh, changes in, in government at the provincial level and some of the some of the issues that they've had with their neighbors and such? How is a federal B.C., uh, uh, the government, uh, the federal election going to affect British Columbia? I, I think massively. Yeah. The, I mean, British Columbia is very unique in that all three uh, parties, the Liberals, the Conservatives and the NDP, are essentially tied. They all have a shot gaining the most votes in, which in amazes that me because i thought it was all about the ndp and the greens out there i was so surprised to hear the conservatives yeah well the, the greens do do well uh, for them anyway they, they double digits around 15 percent support but aside from vancouver island that that you're not gonna have a chance of winning any any seats there so um you, you know it, it's 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 wide open territory. British Columbians don't know who they want to go for, and it's probably very region specific and issue specific. You've got pipelines, you know, and the economy versus climate change and oil tankers, right? And and it's very difficult for them to reconcile those two things. All right, Sean Simpson has been with us from Ipsos, of course, uh, following uh, the campaign trail for Global News. It's going to be a fascinating week, Sean. I'm sure we'll chat, uh, chat again. Thanks again. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Into the home stretch of the uh, 2019 federal election campaign. Uh, some changes since it all started. And uh, as it usually uh, is at the end, the last uh, few days, like a horse race, anything can happen, anything changes, and uh, and often does. Uh, we've been talking about how a pretty much neck and neck uh, uh, horse race or, or competition between first and second. And as we st- stated earlier in the campaign, the, the real interest came with third and fourth with the battle between the Green Party and the NDP for the official protest vote or the other option per se. And of late, it certainly seems like the NDP is making some ground, making some gains uh, post-debate and such. So what does this mean as we head into the final week, uh, and especially with an advanced poll now behind us? Let's bring in Conrad Wynn, Professor, Department of Political Science, Carleton University, and with us now. Conrad, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Well, thank you, and you're a cheerful host. Well, thank you so much. We've just started, though. Your opinion might change when I'm done. 
<laughs> All right. Is is this campaign is well? We've seen uh, a, a uh, an advance poll over a long weekend. Uh, I'm not sure if that factors into it as well. I'd love to hear your opinion on that as well. But is this about the campaign, the early uh, advance poll attendance, or is this about convenience? Well, it might well be about convenience, but um, uh, I haven't really seen any in-depth polls on the issue. And this is something that I, I used to do years ago, but uh, don't do any uh, much any longer. Uh, so it's really tricky, and it's especially tricky because the election looked from start as if it was the most boring possible election. Mm-hmm. So what about the fact that this these advanced polls have fallen on a holiday weekend? Is that relevant? Does that happen often? It doesn't happen often, and it might be relevant, but we don't know. You know, without proper polling, and by pro- proper polling, I mean not just good sampling, but really good questions that get people to reveal what they're thinking, both the people who are in the advanced poll, the casting in their ballot, and people who haven't. It, it's really hard to know. I mean, if you look at this election, um, there aren't a lot of good reasons for people to be all that excited. Yeah, and we talked about that early on in the campaign, that people were, especially with the scandal and such, people were starting to become cynical and wondered if it was going to be a low voter turnout this year. Um, well, the, the inclination is to have a low voter turnout because people are, in fact, justifiably cynical. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they, they often believe that politicians just make up things in order to get votes and uh, that they're not uh, honest people. And, and to the extent they're honest, they don't have as much power as they claim they do. I mean, most federal money is already spoken for under, you know, contracts and agreements and practices. Hmm. So you, you can't just elect a new prime minister and expect dramatic changes. Does the increase in uh, voter turnout for the advanced polls at least indicate that people are interested and they're not going to stay at home and be cynical about this election? We don't really know because because the the long weekend and and we don't know because the people who go to advanced polls are different from other people. And we don't know to what extent they've gone to advanced polls because they're all excited, either with love or anger or because the parties, you know, persuaded them to, to go and vote. We, these are things we, we do not know. Let me tell you what I think we do know, that people were very excited about Justin Trudeau the last election. I mean, Stephen Harper knew in, well, well in advance that he was probably going to lose because people were so excited. Uh, Justin had multiple advantages. His father uh, had been prime minister and was remembered fondly, especially after he passed away. Uh, it's always better to die and be remembered than to be remembered when you're alive. Mm. You don't get the same charity. Um, Justin is a, a pretty uh, exciting, smiling, uh, charismatic guy. That's the plus. But he's done some stupid things. Um, you know, he was he he was involved in some corruption shenanigans, especially his relation with SNC Lavalin. He uh, mistreated senior women after insisting that he was the guy who was going to treat women with equality, and then he behaved worse than probably any prime minister I can remember. So so that that poses some problems for him. The conservative leader suffers disadvantages. He's just somewhat boring. 
he hasn't done any of the bad things that Justin appears to have done, mm. uh, but he's just not exciting. And then Singh, does does boring sell this time because of what we've seen uh, with the prime minister <laughs> and what we're seeing south of the border? I mean, at the end of the day, it seems to have become about showbiz. I mean, is is dull? Does that become an attraction at any point? Oh, I think it does. I think you're really onto something. Yes, and when people look tired of a charismatic person, they 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 turn to the boring person. Uh, there, there's just little doubt of that, and I think you're really on to something. Uh, but uh, our election is even more complicated because you have the NDP leader who combines being everything a, a party leader should be. You know, he's really very bilingual. He speaks uh, in a uh, calm and reasonable way. But he doesn't look the way a Canadian uh, political leader should look. He, you know, he's got a traditional Sikh turban, mm-hmm. and that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, especially in the Quebec ridings where the NDP has so many seats. Um, and a lot of people are, they're not, they're, there's some modest discomfort with immigrants and immigration, even at the same time, people say they're not against immigrants and they don't want discrimination, and that they're probably being truthful on both fronts. They mm-hmm. don't want discrimination, but they're not totally comfortable. And then some immigrants, uh, they're, they're less comfortable with um, kind of not Muslims in general, but radical extremist or yeah. Islamist Muslims make some people uncomfortable. And he wears a turban, and a lot of people get confused between a traditional Sikh and yeah. a, you know, a Muslim radical. So that, that poses a problem for him, especially especially in the Quebec writings that he holds. So, so he's going to be the most interesting person to watch. And considering when this race started, many were thinking that with the Greens surging out of the gate, that they were going to replace and be the new third party, the new third option, the new protest vote for those who saw it that way. And post-debate, uh, it seems that uh, Jagmeet Singh has left them, you know, just standing in his dust. Well, I, I was not among those who thought that the Greens were going to replace the NDP. The... Um, you know, I think that the Greens always do better, or usually do much better in the polls than they actually do at the balloting box. Yeah. And then the other thing is the Greens represent an issue, of, you know, fixing the environment, where they have two big problems. One problem is that the North American environment has been getting consistently better. We have consistently less pollution, and that's a problem because it's something that our government can influence and control. But things aren't getting worse. They're getting better. Then the other problem is that the biggest threat to the global environment is actually thousands of miles away in China. Yeah. So, so what advantage do the Greens offer? In fact, what can they do for us in dealing with Beijing that the liberals, the conservatives or the NDP can't do? Uh, many have talked about the recent surge uh, that the, in support that the NDP have seen. Um, uh, however, with what's happening in Quebec and the rise of the bloc, and many still predicting that the NDP will lose seats in Quebec, will they be as much of an influence as today people are predicting they may be? 
will the NDP be yes. much of an influence? Yes. That is the trickiest of all questions. I mean, this is a very tricky election. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, what happens to the NDP? I think just the leader himself is a is a tricky man, not because he's a sonist, but he combines sounding like the reasonable Canadian you, you could live with, but looking strange because of his attire. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think it's remarkable that the NDP numbers are up, but we can't tell how these are going to be translated into seats. The numbers could could be higher than ever, and the seats lower than ever, because a lot of Quebecers might just look at him and say, no, there's a strange-looking man. I'm not that comfortable. It was fascinating with uh, the two debates and specifically the clip of uh, Jugmeet Singh encountering uh, the elderly gentleman, uh, gentleman who went up to him and said, you know, you should cut your turban off and the way he handled that. And then, you know, explained to the gentleman that uh, that's not his Canada. That's not that's not uh, uh, the way Canada is uh, today. And then. As as Jugmeet Singh walked away, the man more or less endorsed him. More, more uh, spoke very positive. I can't remember exact word that he said, but I hope you win, or I'm going to vote for you, or something of that effect. I, I think that clip, as well as the debates, resonated with a lot of people. Well, I think you know. I think you're on to something. Uh, that that was my sense of Singh that he seems like a reasonable man. But, he, but you know, as I mentioned, he could get a record number of NDP votes with no record number of NDP seats. Yeah. You know, the, you can't rule out that. I think the NDP was not being... For, you know, I don't think any of the parties are being that clever, honestly. Um, in some ways, I think it's the weakest election I've ever observed. Because all of the parties have been somewhat incompetent. Well, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people have talked about Andrew Scheer as the leader of the Conservatives and, and you know, what happened to Peter McKay, uh, what happened to Ron Ambrose, what happened to Lisa Raitt, and all of those people. And, you know, I firmly believe that all those people thought that Trudeau would just instantly get two terms and we're not wasting our time. We're going to go out and get some other experience and some other whatever, <laughs> perhaps make some money. And then we're going to circle around in four years when, the, when, when Trudeau media is over. And all of a sudden, you know, we found ourselves uh, after the first mandate, Trudeau shooting himself in the foot and a wide open race. Well, I, I think you're right, but I think there's more to it than that. I think uh, being a politician has become increasingly hard. It's very demanding. It's exhausting. And a lot of people are having doubts about whether they want to be a politician and whether they want to be prime minister. Yeah, I mean, if you just look at Western countries, their debt levels are skyrocketing. Uh, look at Ontario; uh, its debt now exceeds that of California, many times mm-hmm. the size. So, why should they become politicians? And then um, there there are a fair number of very thoughtful politically minded people who also, to be honest, they look at media reporting and they feel that media reporting is is more wrong than it's been in a long time. 
And do they want to subject themselves and their families to Mm -hmm. incorrect reporting? What about demographics in this election? Is is will we look back at this election? You you were saying earlier it's one of the most boring elections. Will we look back at this le- election as being a boring election, or will we look at this election uh, as a turning point? And, and what I'm talking about many many credited uh, the prime minister's win in the last election with the greater number of millennials who turned out to vote. Now we're hearing, and I'm not sure if this math is accurate or not, that the millennial population out numbers the baby boomer population, but we're certainly very close to that. Uh, what happens when that happens? Are we there now? Um, well, are we there in terms of, uh, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, well, millennials were, a lot of millennials were credited with electing the prime minister. Uh, is that sending a new trend in, uh, in Canadian politics where now the baby boomers aren't the biggest segment of the population? How will that affect things? Well, I think uh, older people are still the, the major demographic for two reasons. They're, they're large in number, but really three. They're living longer. And they actually turn out to vote. Yeah, bingo. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean... You know, when when people say to me, "Aren't the younger people going to elect uh, reelect Justin?" You know, one of my facetious answers: They will, if only they wake up in time. <laughs> oh, Conrad, you know you're going to get in trouble for that one. Oh, I probably am. <laughs> Good for you. Uh, so, are you expecting anything big in the next week? I mean, are we going to ride this right to the end the way it is, with pretty much a neck and neck race between first and second, and and uh, the NDP working as the spoiler? Well, the, the 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 NDP is in a unique situation where where they have a popular leader, but not necessarily in the writings that they need to keep, and so that's that's unique, and and I don't think the NDP was very strategic about choosing Singh. I think they should have probably given him a high post other than leader and told him to spend a lot of time in Quebec um, to to make Quebecers more aware of him, more familiar with him, more comfortable with him. But it's a bit of a shocker for, for the Quebec uh, Quebecers who live in the NDP ridings to see him, not because he is a strange, unusual person. No, he seems very mm-hmm. reasonable to me. But the headgear makes him look yeah. very foreign. So that's a problem. And then I think that the the conservatives are in a tough situation because even if they win somewhat more seats and votes, uh, the NDP might well, uh, you know, put Justin back as prime minister. And that it would be awfully tempting for the conservatives to come out at the last moment with a very open attack on the prime minister. And they have lots of things they can use. Mm-hmm. Conrad Wynn has been with us, professor, Department of Political Science, Carleton University. Conrad, fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, many of you saw the footage of the funeral for uh, Devin Selvey that took, uh, took place over the weekend. Uh, and, of course, this is the tragic story of a 14-year-old boy who uh, was bullied 
and uh, bullied repeatedly and called his mother for help uh, on this day where uh, he was being bullied again uh, and she tried to get to him, unfortunately not in time, and um, was stabbed in the back while he was trying to get to the safety of his mother. Just a horrific story uh, which has us all looking inward, hopefully, and, and, and trying to solve this issue rather than blaming uh, any certain organization or person or place or, or what have you for this. This is a societal problem, and it's something we've got to take a peek at. Uh, let's bring in Deborah Pepler, York University's Distinguished Research, Research Professor, Department of Psychology in the Faculty of Health, and is with us now. Deborah, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for covering the issue and helping all of us. Uh, talk about it and understand it a bit more. You know, it's interesting, Deborah. When we started talking about this, and, and this incident happened, and obviously us out here uh, more connected to it. Although it certainly has been a story that's resonated uh, around the country. Uh, the first thing I thought about was, you know, we're always talking about guns, especially in the GTHA, especially in the GTA. You know, there's so many issues about guns and what can we do to protect people from guns and regulation and what have you. And here we have a situation where. There was no gun involved. This was a stabbing. Are we spending too much time concentrating on the weapon and not enough time concentrating on the cause? That's a great question that you're asking, and I, and I think the answer to your question is yes. If we could help young people starting very early to learn to care for themselves and care for others and and be included and feel valued and feel an important part of a school and a society, I think we'd have far less violence. Why are kids killing kids? Oh, these are complex issues, and uh, children these days are being raised in complex times. But for young people who move into criminality, they're about seven years of warning. So we can, you know, if a child is 14, we can tell by the time he or she is seven Mm -hmm. that they're on a troubled trajectory. They're acting out, they're impulsive, and they haven't learned the absolutely critical skill of learning how to regulate, excuse me, their emotions and behavior, because that underlies being able to be successful at school, but also in relationships, Mm -hmm. because we need to be regulated in relationships. We heard the detective who was investigating this, and obviously everybody involved, just astonished by all of this, said, and, and I'm, uh, I certainly don't have his word, I'm not quoting his words accurately here, but something along the lines of, it just appeared to have n- no respect, or they seem to have no respect for human life. H- how do you explain that? There's another word for it, a fancy word called moral disengagement, and it's just Young people who are so alienated have had such difficult upbringings, either because of harsh punishment or neglect or parents who just, for whatever reason, didn't have the capacity to hold them and keep them safe and secure. And they just learn to disregard others. It's, it's often called callous and unemotional. We know how it develops. There may be somewhat of a genetic predisposition, but it depends so much on the quality of relationships that young people are brought up in. 
what can the rest of us do in in a situation like this? Because another thing that I, I found fascinating was after this event was over, um, there was no shortage of of help that was coming in. There were counselors coming into the school. There was this, to, you know, and everybody, whether it's group discussion or individual, trying to help everybody through this, trying to explain it, try to what, you know, and, and even in the memorial, memorials that we've seen, the football game and 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 the, the turnout at the funeral and such. You know, I, I completely understand the emotion of all of this, but there's a part of me that's asking, where was everybody when Devin needed them? Well, I think the most important thing that we can do is to communicate. And allegedly, Devin's mother went to the school three times to mm-hmm. say that her child had been bullied. We need to believe young people and their parents who come forward to say they've been bullied. It, it, it seldom occurs that somebody comes forward, and it's not true. These aren't legal investigations. The, the legislation is quite clear that if bullying is reported, the principal has a responsibility to look into it, to speak with the child who's bullied, to speak with the children who who have been victimized. And it, it we need to look forward. There doesn't need to be evidence for this. We need to say... If this is occurring, what can we do to change the situation? How can we build a safety plan for the child who's being victimized, or at least state he or she's being victimized? Uh, so, no. I, so, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, I just think we need to, to be much more responsive, both to support the child who's been victimized, but also the child who's been bullying others. These young people are on a on a terrible trajectory. Mm. They bully others, they get into dating violence, they're more likely to sexually harass, and they're more likely to move into violence in romantic relationships, in partnerships, and be violent toward their children. This is not a healthy trajectory. Uh, We hear many of the school boards and such, uh, you know, all say we have a zero tolerance policy. We don't put up with this. We got, you know, uh, policies in place. I I couldn't believe the amount of of email and and correspondence I got from people after this story broke about the same sort of thing. They've tried and and they're not able uh, to to get help. And, And they ask if there's zero tolerance, how does this happen? It seems we're talking more about it, but are we really doing anything constructive? Well, I think that we're much more aware of it. And we've run a national network called PrevNet, Promoting Relationships and Eliminating Violence Network, and there's a lot of information. I think one of the very big problems is that Schools are evaluated on how well they teach literacy and numeracy and science. And they aren't evaluated on how they teach from kindergarten through the end of high school, social-emotional capacities or relationship capacities. And these are every bit as important in children's lives. So, you know, it's the zero-tolerance approaches are really interesting. What they do in the end is they marginalize the students who probably need to be connected most, the students who are antisocial and aggressive probably come to school and find that it's the safest and most secure place they go in their daily lives. And if they're pushed to the edges and suspended and expelled, they just move out into 
more antisocial circumstances and, you know, others who encourage them and engage them in antisocial behavior at great cost to themselves and to society. So I think we need to start early looking at these issues, identifying children both who are at risk for bullying and for being victimized and and find ways to ensure that we protect children. And I had... I had a 16-year-old on who uh, was talking about being bullied and, and, and just an incredibly emotional story and, and basically said that, um, you know, someone had, this person had pulled a knife on him, uh, went through the various protocols, the person was suspended, but then he said they came back two weeks later madder than hell. Yeah. And that's not solving the problem. It's really not, is it? So you have to ask yourself the question. One has to ask oneself the question. You know, what is the child learning or the student learning with this discipline action? And if they're not learning how to get along better with others and how to care for others and how to be responsible themselves, then they're not learning the lesson that we want. So in other words, rather than spending two weeks on vacation at home, they should be somewhere perhaps getting counseling on this. Yes. And, you know, being in the school, learning what to do, you know, not being at home and on the streets and playing Grand Theft Auto or some, you know, some other antisocial activity. Uh, Many have said, you know, bullying's been around forever. Uh, In the old days, you know, it used to just be settled uh, on the schoolyard. It never got to this uh, never got to this uh, extent. H- how do, can we compare old to new? What's different now to then? You know, I, I, I think it's difficult to compare old to new. I think that um, communities were very tight and adults were very much involved. They were on the front porch watching kids and commenting and, you know, mothers were at home uh, by and large and, Society has changed immensely, and um, I think parents are trying their best under difficult circumstances to raise children. And then we have the the entire layer of uh, social media that adds another challenge for children and youth, as well as parents and teachers who are trying to guide them in the right way. But the thing I think we need to remember is that the vast majority of young people are wonderful. They manage through our schools. That's a great point. That's a great point. We forget about that. They do well. And so, you know, there's a small, small minority of youth who need uh, the largest proportion of support in our schools, whether they're those who are victimized or those who are bullying. So let's talk about, because again, you know, sometimes we, you know, the older generation goes nuts and paints uh, everybody with a broad brush. What can the majority of those kids that are great kids, that know right from wrong, that have been brought up in good homes and, and, and you know, again, not perfect homes. I shouldn't even say good homes, loving homes, <laughs> uh, because yeah. it doesn't matter how you grow up as long as you're loved and there's communication there. What can those kids learn from this experience. You know, as I said, they were all gathered around and memorializing this poor young, poor young kid and, 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 you know, just felt so helpless. What can they do for the cause? What can the rest of us do? Well, I think the most important thing is to watch out for others. 
I think each of us has a responsibility to care for the other. And if you, if a student doesn't feel confident intervening, which takes a lot of effort and a lot of social status and confidence to do that, then find a way of ensuring that adults who can be responsible know about it because it's the silence that enables this to flourish and and get momentum so you know most importantly look out for each other and and take care of each other and and be sure that you're not silent either when this happens face to face as in in traditional forms of bullying or through social media in cyberbullying it seems like we have to teach empathy again Yes, and that's part of social-emotional development, being able to understand your own feelings and the feelings of others. And that's something we should teach at school. It's something that should be learned at home. And again, it's, you know, if children fail to show empathy, punishing them doesn't help them learn it. So we have to find other ways of stepping in and helping a child re-examine a situation and think about what they, you know, what they were feeling, what others were feeling, and how they could have, have approached it differently. What will we learn from this event? Will it change anything? Is it significant in that respect? Oh, I think it's very significant. And there's been a lot of discussion about it. And maybe when people start to understand that children show problems seven years before they really get into criminal behavior, we'll start to put more emphasis on identifying the children who really come into school unprepared to learn and unprepared to get along with others. And we'll teach all of the children the most important relational skills that they need for living every moment of every day in their lives. It seems we live in a divisive world. It's, uh, you know, fake it till you make it. It's all about me. Um, can, can, we, can we change the course? Can we change this direction? You know, again, I think that that's the prevailing attitude or, or talk. But when you talk to young people and, and learn about what they're doing for others, the volunteer work they're doing, the care they have, for their friends, I don't think we can use that broad stroke brush to say that all children are, or all adults are just out for me and, and, and what's right for me. So I do think our schools are the socializing institution for society, and we have to look at how we teach young people to become the kind of citizens that we want them to be. It seemed that after this situation, a lot were um, pointing fingers towards the school or the board, um, in, or the boards, and I mean, because this is certainly a, a countrywide, nationwide problem. Um, are, are we looking more to place blame than solve the issue? Is this anyone's problem? Is this a societal issue? Does this come back to parenting? I think it's an issue on all of those levels. I think it is a societal level issue because there there are models of bullying behavior, people who use their power aggressively in media every single day. And schools, there are very, very explicit guidelines for 
how schools should be dealing with these issues, how boards should be dealing with these issues. And I know the Hamilton Wentworth School Board has done a tremendous amount to raise awareness about bullying. So this could have happened in any school board. Mm -hmm. But it's about the relationships in the school. So if we think about school climate, it's really the sum of relationships. And the students need to be connected to each other and care about each other, but they also need to feel connected to the teachers that, that they're with every single day, and they need to know that somebody cares about them and knows who they are and holds them in mind. Because students who drop out of school and students who have problems in school think nobody cares. And you said it, you know, they need to be raised in caring families where there's love and communication. And the same thing holds true in schools. It's really learning is a social experience, and we need to hold youth, children and youth in the schools with a sense that we care how well they learn. What about police presence in schools? Uh, many commented about that during this situation here. Uh, there, there's stories of recent, uh, recently where they've taken school, the police out of schools because they felt that it was an intimidation factor. Um, sh- should they be there? Should they not be there? Well, you know, I think that police are, again, society's agent for um, appropriate behavior within the community. And it depends probably on the individual police um, officer, whether she or he can build relationships with students, mm-hmm. not be a power over kind of person, but a power with kind of person, whether they're somebody that, that students feel comfortable going to and talking about things, and whether they take an interest in the students. So, you know, is this a policing issue? I don't think it is. I think it's a developmental issue. I think it's an educational issue. Um, so it depends, I think, on the nature of the police presence. It shouldn't be scaring kids not to bully because that's just showing how we use power when we have it to control and distress others. Deborah Pepler has been with us, York University's Distinguished Research Professor of the Department of Psychology in the Faculty of Health. Deborah, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Okay, thank you very much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.